You are listening to Help for HD Live, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in five, four, three, two. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This podcast is made possible because of Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, and the Griffin Foundation. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today we have Sarah Hernandez, Leora Fox, and Rachel Harding on from HD Buzz. And we are going to be talking about something that I have a huge interest in, um, especially as I start to research it more. And I wanted to share the questions and everything with the community because I am sure as they start seeing it, they're going to have more questions. So thanks so much for joining me today, ladies. I'm going to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. So let's talk about what gene modifiers of HD are. Great. Maybe I can get us started with a little bit of an introduction. Um, so most people listening to this podcast probably already know that, you know, when you get your genetic test for Huntington's, you end up with a result which is called a CAG number. And this reflects how many uh, repeats of a specific um, DNA letter code, CAG, you have in your Huntington gene. Um, and so you'll have this CAG number and the general rule of thumb is that we know that the longer the CAG number, often the earlier the age of onset is for Huntington's. Um, but something that's been of great interest for a long time to many scientists is that lots of people will have exactly the same CAG number, but some of them will have symptoms really early and others will have them much later. And so what we want to try and do to try and understand this is work out, well, what's going on? Like what are the reasons why someone might have symptoms earlier or later? And it turns out that uh, nature has already kind of provided us with possible ways that we might be able to cure or treat Huntington's disease by um, through different mutations in other genes. And it turns out that if we have mutations in other genes, um, some of them will make symptoms start earlier, some will make them start later. Um, and one of the big areas that people are pursuing right now for Huntington's disease therapies is working out well, what are these mutations that mean that this person has disease 20 years later than someone with exactly the same CAG number? Maybe we can make drugs which would give that same effect, maybe not with genetics, but with a drug instead to give the same results. And then we could make people have symptoms much later on in life. Um, and so that's kind of a summation of like where that what people are thinking about in terms of genetic modifiers um, and, you know, their potential application. Uh, as, as drugs and medicines for Huntington's. Awesome. Okay, so how do we know how many, like how many genetic or gene modifiers have we discovered for HD so far? I guess I could jump in here because that is a tough question to answer. I think that there are, there have been a few key published uh, papers that, 
kind of looked at the DNA from many, many people with HD um, and kind of tried to, to figure out what were some of those, what were some of the signals coming up? So I, I think that the answer to that question is there are quite a few, but um, it's hard to say how many. Um, and because a lot of the statistics that go into looking at these huge data sets from the genes, the thousands and thousands of genes from thousands of people, um, you have to map it out in very specific ways. So scientists are kind of looking for different kinds of peaks um, in that data. Um, and there are certain peaks that were so strong that, 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 that those are some of the ones that they have focused on. But in terms of actual numbers, um, it's hard to say. What would you say are the top ones that they focused on? I'm sorry, Rachel, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think um, using the cutoffs that the clever statistician scientists who understand the math much better than I do, they used in some of their papers. I think we can probably say there's a ballpark of around sort of 20 to 30 that people are pretty confident in. But as Leora mentioned, basically it really depends like how you define your statistics and how significant you want something to be. And there are some genes that are identified in these studies, which maybe aren't the most significant when we use all these statistical tests, but they're still really interesting results for us to follow up on. So, yeah, so, it you know, there might be 10 or so in the top that we're all really, really keen on, but actually the list is anywhere up to about 100 genes or so. Yeah. And I think another interesting point um, is that there can be combinations of these genes right? Like each one of these genes can affect the age that we get at which you get Huntington's to a different degree, but you might have different combinations of different genes that maybe make you get it earlier or later. And so there's actually quite a bit of complexity in this. It's more than just um, trying to tease out one over the other, although we can target one over the other when we're thinking about therapeutics, when it comes down to the population level, it actually gets quite complex. And there's, there's some genes which go in both directions, right? Mm -hmm. So there's somewhere we know if you hit it and you have some types of um, mutations or small changes in that gene, you'll have symptoms earlier, but a different type of mutation or change in your DNA code for that gene will actually push things in the other direction. So it's not, it's not a simple cut and dry situation. So which ones are, are the most exciting for you guys? So if I could jump in here, I think um, I think what's most exciting about genetic modifiers is the fact that so many of them seem to participate in a similar pathway, a similar biological pathway known as DNA damage response. And so what it seems to indicate is that a lot of the modifier genes associated with Huntington's participate in a similar function and that they repair DNA. Um, and no one's entirely sure exactly why this happens. Um, but a lot of them, a lot of the strongest modifiers participate in that. And that's what I think is the most interesting rather than one target over another is that they all seem to be participating um, maybe in a similar way. No one's really quite sure, but they all seem to be participating in DNA repair, which I think is fascinating. And I think it's important to note that this was, I mean, kind of an unexpected and it was expected, but also unexpected finding. People thought, you know, for a long time, we've thought about Huntington's as, you know, the aggregates and these kind of protein clumps as one of the biggest problems. And so people were expecting genes to pop up, which are, you know, genes that deal with protein clumps and deal with processing these kind of proteins in cells. 
We didn't see any of those. Like, none of those are in there. Is all uh, the vast majority are all these DNA repair proteins. Um, and so that was really interesting. And that's why, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you'll see a lot of papers in the published literature and a lot of labs are kind of changing gears to look at that specifically. That's really interesting. Um, so what, like, is there one that stands out to you the most as far as like on a, on a gene or that's, that's really interesting? Go for it, Rachel. I see ya. I think Leora has this. Okay. Go for it, Leora. <laughs> well, honestly, like if I'm thinking about it, it's, I mean, it's like Sarah said, you know, there's a whole set of them that are sort of interesting. The names that stand out to me in my um, in my head that I know have been researched that I'm not really, you know, I'm probably not as up on the research as some others, but um, um, fan one is a name that, um, that comes up a lot. Um, the MSH genes, MSH3, but like, the, you know, those are just kind of acronyms that are also, you know, thrown around for genes that are involved in repairing DNA in a, in a particular way. Like our genes are just, our cells are bombarded by all kinds of things all the time, oxidants and the sun. And, um, we think of DNA as like this sort of, um, you know, a sort of set entity and it's unchanging, but it's actually really changing all the time. And it's being, um, yeah, it's, it's just being bombarded with all sorts of insults and our bodies have, um, a ton of machinery to, to repair that all the time. And when that machinery goes awry in some way is when, um, yeah, is when, you know, problems can happen. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, you can pull out certain acronyms there, right. And we could get into, you know, what exactly they're doing in terms of DNA repair. But I think that the, that Sarah really captured the, um, that the important thing is that there's something going on with, with repairing DNA. And one of the reasons I'm hesitant, I guess, to be like, this is my favorite genetic modifier <laughs> is because I think there's, um, there's a lot of information that people can get, right? Like we can sequence our own genomes and we can have like 23andMe send you your DNA. Uh, and so I would caution people against trying to get too much into the nitty gritty of one genetic modifier and trying to pick out a single nucleotide polymorphism. So a single change that they think might mean something. Because as I mentioned before, it's really complex, right? Like these things are interacting with other genetic modifiers and we can't truly really say, oh, you have that SNP at five years, right? Like you're going to get it five years later. We don't have that capacity yet. And so I think when we start calling out like MSH3 or MLH1 or sp very specific genes, um, I don't want people to get lost in the weeds. Um, we know the CAG repeat length is the single most important determining factor when determining when you're going to get Huntington's disease symptoms. Um, but all these other genetic modifiers, there seems to be a very intricate interplay um, that might not be as important right now. Right now, I want to caution in HD research rather than looking at the whole picture and seeing what's really going on from the pathway point of view. I think. Uh, oh, sorry, Rachel. Sorry. I was just going to add that a lot of the time as well that you'll see scientists really focusing in or on one or two. And I think it's fair to say that like MSH3 is definitely of interest to a lot of scientists, but that's more, not because it's one of the biggest changes. It, it doesn't necessarily yield the largest change in age of onset of symptoms, but it's because scientists think differently to maybe how patients and clinicians are thinking about this because they're thinking about what might be tractable to make a medicine for. Like which one of these 
um, genes that have been identified is druggable. And that's a completely different set of criteria than which one's the most important in terms of modifiers. Because for that, you're often looking for something that you can make a small molecule um, that's going to go and target that specific gene. You want to make sure that targeting that gene isn't going to cause a whole host of secondary problems because DNA repair is a really critical function. So if you start making drugs that are going to change DNA repair, you know, that can lead to cancers and other things. So there's certain genes that you absolutely do not want to touch, even though they're really important in Huntington's pathology, maybe. Um, and so that's why, for example, MSH3 is of great interest because we know that you can completely get rid of that gene and seemingly nothing absolutely terrible happens. And in some ways that makes it a really good drug target because we can get rid of that gene nothing bad happens but maybe if we target it in Huntington's we can make things better but that's all very much a hypothesis and that's one specific example it doesn't necessarily mean it's the most important GWAS hit. Let me let me ask you about MSH3 uh, because you guys brought that up and, and I've heard FAN1 and MSH3 and like the big thing is is it, they affect age of onset correct so all of these gene modifiers that we're talking about is that what they do they affect age of onset or do they do a whole host of different things i think that's a really good question the way you phrase that i think the answer is yes to both and probably yes because they do a whole host of different things that we don't understand right some of these genes might be setting off chain reactions of things what we say is downstream of them um, but they're probably doing many, many different things in the body and all of those tiny changes can add up to years added on to, or taken away from healthy, um, yeah, a healthy part of life. So, so both of those. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to add before that, um, you know, and the, Rachel was talking about, um, like certain modifiers being, um, something that, that, you know, people focus on for drugs. And um, in grad school, I was studying a protein called Alfie that came up as like probably a modifier. Um, and everywhere I went presenting my work, people would say, is this, is this protein druggable? Can we do something with drugs? And it really, it, it really didn't seem to be. And so that was always sort of the hard question was like, where do you go with these interesting findings if they aren't really something that you can apply to to drugs and certainly pharma companies aren't going to touch something that's not druggable but there's a lot out there that can lead in a roundabout way to something that is druggable so well and i just have a fascination with with genetics so for me when i'm asking these questions i'm less i'm less concerned about if if they're druggable and more con like i'm more interested in you know, if I have this gene, does it mean I'm going to have, you know, less time versus more time uh, versus whatever other thing that this gene does makes, you know, causes causes HD to act differently, like um, more behavioral symptoms versus movements, you know, that type of thing. So um, it, it's interesting to me to hear all of this because, um, yeah, the two big ones that I hear about are FAN1 and MSH3. And that's great. But like you said, there's so many more. Um, and Sarah, you made this amazing point that it's not, you don't have to think of just one affecting somebody. It can be multiple ones affecting somebody and then how they all play a role together. And that's what's so interesting about genetics. Um, 
So yeah, I think you're making a really like, I mean, the question you're asking is, is really along the lines of a question that I get a lot in my work at HDSA, which is like, how do I tell if there are genetic modifiers that I have that are going to affect the course of my disease? And the answer right now is that it's really hard to tell. There's not really a clinical setting right now where you can go and get tested for any of these genes. If you were to do so, it would be very difficult to tell what that would actually mean for the course of your HD. And when we talk about genetic modifiers, um, we think about it in terms of very large numbers. So when we analyze tons and tons of genetic data, we can make predictions and uh, assumptions about things, but we can never place an individual anywhere uh, with any accuracy because there are so many factors involved. And on top of the genetic factors, there are environmental factors. So it's a really tough question and a frustrating one because sometimes, you know, we hear about all of these um you know, all these acronyms in the research news and want to know what that means for ourselves. Um, but it's, it's always really hard to tell on the individual level. Yeah. Well, and, I think, and, sorry. Yeah, oh, no, go ahead. Go. What were you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, the experiments that have been done to identify these GWAS are, you know, they're retrospective. So they're looking at people who already have age of onset. And they're looking at in, in this huge number of patients, are there ways that, you know, the things that correlate with that age of onset, but doing correlation is not prediction, right? So thinking about, you know, these huge data sets, we can look back and say, oh, it looks like this guy, this gene over here is important for this. And this gene over here is important for that. But that's a completely different experiment than having so much data that you can take one person's individual DNA code and then make a prediction from there. And there's actually, you know, if we look to other diseases, there aren't actually that many other um, uh, cases where you have these kind of mutations where we can be really robustly sure that you can predict something from someone's genetics. Um, so for example, something that comes to mind is like BRCA2 mutations, right? So this is something that many people will be familiar with, that if you have a certain type of a BRCA2 mutation, your probability of getting breast cancer is you know, much, 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 much higher. And so many people then will often choose to have like mastectomy or other kinds of operations to get rid of that. But it's important to remember all of these things is still a prediction. So it's still like saying you can have these mutations, but there are so many other complicating factors going on that even if you're predicted to be at super high risk for breast cancer because you have a BRCA2 mutation, doesn't mean that you will definitely, definitely get it. Like we still don't know enough about all of the other things that are going on. And all this stuff with GWAS is even more removed from that. It's even more complicated. Um, so I like to see it more as a like, this is a really great way to understand what new drug targets we can find, um, new possibilities for like biological discovery. Um, but the genetics and individual genetics, I think is probably a little bit of a way off. I think what's so hopeful about that too <clears throat> is the fact that it seems that targeting a lot of these modifiers won't just be beneficial for Huntington's. And I know like we're very mired in Huntington's and I know the disease I want to find a cure for is HD. Um, but the reason that matters is because pharmaceutical companies look at this type of stuff, right? Like if their population that they could sell a drug to increases fivefold, that's going to be a more attractive candidate. So it really does benefit the HD field to get on board with maybe drugs that aren't specifically HD focused. And so drug targets like MSH3 or MLH1 or FAN1 
those could be really attractive for pharmaceutical companies. And so I think um, power in numbers, right? Like if we can get a bunch of a drug that works for a, a larger population, it will be better for everyone. And, and those are currently being researched, right? I, I know there's been some studies that like enrolled people to participate in that kind of genetic modifier side to see if um, certain people with HD had had the modifier. Um, and so that's still ongoing, correct? Well, you so know. there are any observational study, so, you know, probably heard of enroll HD and predict HD and prevent HD and any of these studies that are collecting blood samples or biofluid samples of any sort could potentially be used towards large studies of, um, of genetics or of transcriptomics of looking at different levels of proteins and, and things like that. So, um, you know, participation in those studies is what drives these large yeah, the, the ability to have all this large data. There have been some targeted studies. So for example, triplet therapeutics did a, what's called a natural history study, which followed people over the course of a couple of years to try and better understand um, some aspects of, um, of uh, changes in, in CAG repeat length and, and changes over time over the course of a couple of years. And that was related to their research in in basically genetic modifiers um triplet is no <laughs> i'm going to say triplet is no longer with us triplet is um triplet sort of dissolved and so that that research you know while it is you know still of interest academically and might be pursued um, that company is no longer pursuing it there are other companies pursuing these genetic modifiers um the specifics of that are not always you know publicly open until they really have a, a a drug candidate, but for example, another company is called Locus 23 Therapeutics. Um, and they're also working around genetic modifiers of HD and what that means for CAG repeats. We hadn't quite gotten into that, that side of things yet, but that's all in the genetic modifiers realm. No, but that's exactly what I was thinking, Leora, was, was um, triplet. So I, like I knew that there was a company who had looked at one of them um, because I remember a friend being enrolled, um, mm -hmm. in it. So, but I just couldn't remember if it was still ongoing or not. I mean, it's also interesting to me. And I think it's really cool that we've gotten to a point now where we know about all this, right. I'm thinking back 10 years ago where this would have never even been a discussion, you know, like we wouldn't be sitting here able to talk about it because I don't, I don't remember it being a hot topic where it is now. Um, and that's because of how far research has come and, and technology and everything. Um, so for me personally, I'll be interested to see um, what we find in the future when it comes to the genetic modifiers and how big of a deal it becomes. So. Well, I always add to what you said. I think the reason these kind of studies have become you know, tractable is twofold, one of which is the sequencing technologies have just you know, it's exploded and it's become so much cheaper and faster. And we can look at people's DNA so much more easily than, you know, 10, even five years ago. But the second thing is that, that these studies only are possible because you have so many samples. And that means that every time any patient or family member, because the controls are really important as well, right? That anytime anyone goes to the clinic and they're donating blood or they're, you know, 
filling out like whatever form it is like that that is what enables the study and we can't do it without the patients like the the, the number of patient samples you need to have all statistics that you can actually do this kind of analysis that is the that is the biggest limiting factor and there are many other rare diseases for which this kind of study is just completely intractable because getting that amount of patient data is impossible um so it's like all the work of all the patients that has really enabled this discovery it shows the importance of of observational studies right like it's it's more than just clinical trials it really is all of the observational studies um, you know, Leora, you were mentioning prevent and predict and all of those as well. And um, and one of the things that we continue to say is that if even if you're gene negative, getting involved in a study is, is like you said, controls, um, mm -hmm. it's possible. And um, and not to just give up on research if you can't get into a clinical trial. Um, and this is just a really good um, example of of why because of of these genetic modifiers well, ladies thank you so much yeah what were you gonna say Leora? i'm sorry i'm just gonna say it's absolutely possible to contribute really meaningfully to hd research without you know being in a drug trial and it's a big sacrifice certainly um but it's really impactful Thank you again for coming on and talking to me about all the genetic modifiers and genes and, and everything. Um, I'm sure that eventually I'll have more questions for you as I start researching more, but um, I really appreciate you coming on and answering my question. Thanks for having us. So much for having us. Yeah, definitely. Anytime. It's always a pleasure. I'm going to let you go. For those listening, please make sure that you are tuning in every Thursday. Um, make sure that you're tuning in for our new um, HD Uncut show every month. Uh, our one for this month will be with Chloe Butts um, and it will be a JHD show. I'm really excited about it. So make sure that you're tuning in for that. And until next time, guys, take care and love you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.helpforhd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.